Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. This is a gut-wrenching experience for all of humanity, so there's nothing to be gleeful or happy about. With that said, What has happened is that there's been a significant demand shift from brick and mortar to e-commerce. And so you're exactly right that e-commerce grows 44% last quarter at the same time that retail overall shrunk by 3.5%. And retail is obviously significantly bigger than e-commerce. So that means the overall pie is shrinking, but e-commerce is growing and the percentage of that pie is growing significantly for all the obvious reasons. And so what that's meant is that there is more demand for our customers and more demand for the products that our customers sell. And conversely, or in accordance with that, then they need more capital to be able to buy more inventory, to be able to continue to support the growth that those businesses are experiencing. So the vast majority of our customers through 2020 have been growing and scaling rather than the opposite. That was Keith Smith, the CEO of Payability. This is episode 33 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and Keith is our special guest this week. I'm your host, Greg Myers, and hey, before we get started, if you happen to office in Houston, Austin, or North Texas, please check out Fuse Workspace, where their mission is to help others do more. Check them out at fusefuseworkspace.com. Okay, back to the show. Payability offers e-commerce sellers with friction-free cash flow and working capital solutions. These e-commerce sellers are typically on a large platform like Amazon or Shopify. Payability has a unique model and one I think you'll find very interesting. Keith has a passion for his kids and being a dad first. Professionally, he loves to see how Payability helps small businesses and entrepreneurs live the American dream of starting and running their own business. We've got a great episode this week, so let's get started. Hi, Keith. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Hi, Greg. It's good to be here. Great. So let's dive right in. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Yeah. So I I grew up in a little tiny town in Southern Oregon, a little town called Grants Pass, Oregon, about 15,000 people. And so it was was actually voted an all-American city at one point in time. So it kind of lived up to that feeling, which was that it was, it just felt like a very typical kind of Americana early years of growing up. My father was a school teacher. My mother was a church secretary. She ended up having a career shift when she was about 40 and got into banking, which may or may not have inspired me a little bit to consider my future career in finance. But it was a very typical kind of two-parent household, lower middle class kind of kind of upbringing. I ended up going to Seattle to go to school, I went to Northwest University, and decided early on that being in business, starting my own company was going to be the path that I was going to pursue, not least of which I think is because I became highly unemployable at a very early age. So it was kind of an only option, which turned out to be a, a very enjoyable option for me. Great. And you currently live in New York City? Yeah, so I moved to New York about five years ago, a little over five years ago, to start Payability. And so a, our co-founder, who has been a friend of mine for about 15 years now, we had the idea together, and I had just sold my previous company that was in Seattle. And so I I was a single father, and I packed up my two kids. We moved across the country, came to New York to, to start a new fintech company. Wow, that's quite a shift from West Coast to East Coast, huh? Yeah, next time I go through the midlife crisis, I think I'll just get the sports car. Uh, but, but it worked <laughs> out all right. Nice, nice. All right, let's talk about payability a little bit. Tell the audience what payability does. 
So we provide both payments as well as financing solutions, and they're very specifically targeted to e-commerce sellers. So if you are an e-commerce seller that is selling uh, maybe through your own Shopify site, or if you're selling through one of the marketplaces like Amazon, or even selling through Walmart or even eBay, then we have solutions that are highly integrated and highly specific for those use cases. So we provide daily working capital, as well as capital that can be used to be able to purchase inventory, as well as advertising, in order to be able to grow and scale those e-commerce sellers. Okay. Are there certain verticals or niches that work better than others, or is it pretty much any e-commerce company? It really mirrors the e-commerce kind of very universal view of verticals, meaning that you can buy just about anything online at this point in time. So whether it's groceries or furniture and everything in between, and we then provide the capital and then the payment solutions to those sellers who are selling that. So we're not vertically focused at all, but I would consider us to be more channel focused, specifically the channel being e-commerce as our primary focus and primary channel. Okay. And how big is the company? So we started the company five years ago. We have 70 employees. We've done a little over $3 billion in financing in that period of time. And we are heavily focused on technology. About half of our employees are engineers. And so we are big believers and core to our ethos is to develop technology so that we don't have to scale the human side as we continue to grow and scale. And so that's why we've been able to do a significant amount of volume, significant amount of funding with a relatively small team from a personnel perspective. Okay. And how do you find and get or acquire new customers? It really depends on the specific platform that sellers are are selling on. It's been interesting to see the e-commerce seller community kind of evolve over the course of the last five years, where it used to be pretty typical that if you were selling through a particular channel, you'd probably stay committed to that particular channel. So if you were selling on Amazon, as an example, you're probably going to stay selling on Amazon. If you were selling through your own website, even with a website builder like a Shopify, you probably stayed there. Now what's happening is that it is much more common that once you get to a certain size and scale as an e-commerce seller, then you start to diversify your channels. And so if you started out on Amazon, you probably then open up your own store and your own website, maybe using a platform like Volusion or maybe Shopify or one of those. And then you probably also start selling on Walmart. And then you probably also sell through other channels, maybe that are more specifically focused to your particular product vertical. And so our goal as a company is to, to, to be integrated with all of those various solutions, all of those various platforms and tools, and be able to give our customers credit for the revenue and the revenue streams that they're generating through those various channels, and then provide them financing based on those revenue streams. Okay. And I assume that one of the, I guess, fortunate, if there can be such a thing, of the COVID-19 pandemic is that e-commerce is going through the roof. I read a figure this morning that said like there was a 44.4% year-over-year increase in e-commerce sales. I would assume that that's helping your business? Absolutely. It it is definitely a tailwind. And you're right. And that's the right way to, I think, that we think about it, which is this is a gut-wrenching experience for all of humanity. So there's nothing to be gleeful or happy about. With that said, what has happened is that there's been a significant demand shift from brick and mortar to e-commerce. And so you're exactly right that, you know, e-commerce grows 44% last quarter at the same time that retail overall shrunk by three and a half percent. And retail is obviously significantly bigger than e-commerce. So that means the overall pie is shrinking, but e-commerce is growing and the percentage of that pie is growing significantly for all the obvious reasons. And so what that's meant is that there is more demand for our customers and more demand for the products that our customers sell. And conversely, or in accordance with that, then they need more capital to be able to buy more inventory, to be able to continue to support the growth that those businesses are experiencing. So the vast majority of our customers through 2020 have been growing and scaling rather than the opposite. 
Okay. And are you seeing a lot of new e-commerce businesses? And I guess your model is really based on existing that have some sort of existing revenue flow, right? So new coming into the space doesn't necessarily help you? It actually does. So we are, we have a very low bar in terms of time that you've been in business to be able to work with us. So it depends on which product of ours that we are offering and which marketplace or platform that you're selling through. But you can be as little as 90 days in business and selling as little as $2,000 a month in order to be able to qualify for some of our financing solutions. And so we tend to work with a lot of customers that are at very early stages that are really just beginning their businesses. And we've certainly seen a significant uptick in new businesses starting that are e-commerce sellers or that are online-only businesses, which makes sense. A lot of these customers are coming from a brick, a prior brick and mortar kind of experience. And so they may have had a store that was open. They have had to shutter that store, maybe temporarily or permanently. And they're shifting their focus then to be able to have an online distribution channel, which really mirrors the, the demand side of the equation in America today. Okay. And I'm assuming that they're using, typically using the money for inventory and marketing purposes. Yeah, it's interesting. So it depends on the platform that you sell on. So as an example, if you sell through Amazon, as an example, you can buy your advertising directly through Amazon and effectively pay Amazon out of the proceeds from your sales. But if you have your own website, as an example, and you're selling and you have a Shopify site, and you have to, you're responsible for driving the customers there, you're responsible for creating that demand side, then you definitely need an advertising budget. And so when we think about our capital solutions, you are selling on a channel that doesn't require our capital for advertising, then obviously we're providing capital primarily for inventory as well as daily working capital. But if you're, say, if you are trying to drive traffic, if you're trying to drive demand to your own website, and you need to be responsible for your own advertising, then in that case, our, our capital use case really expands to also include advertising as well. Okay, okay. What would you say differentiates you from your competitors out there? Well, I think from my perspective, we have a maniacal focus as a company on removing friction for our customers. There is just so much that's still in the way for an e-commerce seller to get a business up and running, to develop their inventory sources, to make sure that their supply chain is solid, to make sure that they have the right kind of, just even all of the little things like, do I have the right images for my products? Do I have the right descriptions? All of that, that sort of thing. And then making sure that your various distribution channels or sales channels are working and they're working well and they're profitable. There's a lot to developing an e-commerce business. And so when you think about then, how do I also finance this? If we put a bunch of additional barriers in their way or make it very, very difficult or constantly putting hurdles in their way, that's just going to further exacerbate the challenge for these e-commerce sellers. So it's our goal take the friction out to make our financing very specifically tailored to what their use case is and what their needs are and make sure that we can do that as quickly, efficiently as possible and try to take the friction out of getting capital in our customers' hands. Okay. And this next question, I think I want to have sort of you to answer it from two perspectives. One is, where do you see the payments industry, the broader payments industry heading in the next couple of years? So that's one question. And then maybe specifically answer it related to the lending side of B2B and you know lending to businesses. So maybe answer those two questions separately, if you don't mind, just kind of your view of where things are headed in the next couple of years. Yeah, my view, and, and I think the, the company's view really is that payments are going to continue to get more integrated. And that's more integrated from an end consumer experience, but also more integrated from the seller's perspective as well. And of course, there's multiple sides to payments. And it's, you know, whether it's figuring out how do I take payments from my end consumer, or if I'm an e-commerce seller, how do I make payments to my upstream suppliers? 
And that is oftentimes a very complicated, you know, just part of the overall money flow as well. Oftentimes they are sending money overseas. How do they actually, you know, actually go about that? And of course, how do they actually get the capital to be able to purchase that inventory? So all of those things become very, very complex. And we are seeing more and more that the payment solutions that are winning are those that are integrated into the existing workflows, tools, experiences that sellers or end consumers are having in order to be able to, again, just kind of keeping with a theme, taking the friction out of those transactions for whether it's taking that friction out for the seller or taking the friction out for the end consumer. It's all about integrating those payment solutions right where the customer already is. So we certainly see that that trend will continue. And really, it's kind of a similar kind of concept when we think about what that means for financing as well, is that we continue to see that there is going to be a consolidation of functionality, maybe of companies, but more so at least of functionality around payments and financing. So if I'm an an e-commerce seller, I need to be able to make a payment to an upstream seller or upstream supplier. I need capital. I also need a way to be able to make that payment. And so integrating those two solutions together makes an awful lot of sense. And we think that that's a trend that will continue. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm trying to fully understand the business model. And I think it's fascinating what you guys are doing and taking that friction out. I mean, I have looked into the whole e-commerce seller type of thing through Amazon, and it's quite a challenge to to work through what all you have to do to sell a product on Amazon. It's not like, hey, I have this cool widget, I'm going to go sell it. It's sort of complicated. So I think you guys are bringing a lot of value to it and taking out that friction. So do you guys actually get to see sort of there being the e-commerce sellers back end, sort of the revenue and everything. And that's how you're making your business decisions and you see it real time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really central to our thesis, which was that our original going in thesis is that there is a better way to be able to risk assess these small businesses when they are selling online. And traditionally, the way that banks and or even newer fintech specialty finance types of companies, the way that they would risk assess these sellers is they would primarily look at what is the FICO of the founder? What is the credit history of the founder? Our view was that that is a very blunt instrument and not a very accurate instrument in terms of being able to predict what is the likelihood that you're going to be able to be repaid if you extend capital to this customer. So our view was that there are massive new data sets that are coming from marketplaces, from retailers, from these various platforms. And one of the important things about that data is that it is source of truth data. So it's not just coming from the small business owner themselves who needs the capital, but it's actually coming from the place that they are actually selling their wares through. And that gives us a lot of confidence as a finance company to know that, hey, we can rely on that data. And it's also very standardized data, meaning that we can then build machine learning algorithms to be able to assess and understand that data significantly better than a human ever could. So that's what we set out to do five years ago is to build much smarter risk-based algorithms, let the robots do the heavy lifting, and we as humans can go do more interesting things. And so we have been on a mission to train our risk-based machine learning algorithms over the course of the last five years. We've literally fed fed billions of transactions into that system in order to be able to learn and be smarter and get better. And we are significantly better at that at this point in time than we were before. What that means, though, is that we don't need to dig into your credit history in order to be able to prove you to be able to give you capital. What we really want to do is we want to look at and understand what is the nature of the transactions between you and the marketplace or you and the channel that you're selling through? And what is the likelihood that you're going to continue to be able to sell there and continue to get paid through your sales through that channel? And that's really the simple way of describing it. Underneath that is analysis of hundreds of thousands of transactions for just about every single customer and doing that ongoing on a daily basis, automated underwriting review of every single one of our customers constantly in order to better understand what the risk profile looks like and making sure that we can 
head off problems and making sure that we can continue to put capital to work with customers that need more capital and are really growing. Gotcha. And so that's why half your employees are engineers and developers. That's exactly right. Makes sense. So we talked about, you know, looking at the industry, whether it's lending or financing or payments. And, you know, the next couple of years out, I always kind of like to hear people's vision of what does it look like 10 years out? It's hard to answer, but curious if you have a thought on what happens in 10 years. Yeah, I, I agree with the axiom that, you know, we, we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and we underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. And I think that's probably true as it relates to payments, as it relates to financing, as it relates to e-commerce. My sense is that we are going through some significant structural changes. I mean, we just saw in a six-month period of time, e-commerce went from 12% of retail sales in America to 16% of retail sales in America. So there is a shift of consumer behavior, and there is a corresponding then shift of the supply chains, of the financing, the way that you get financing. All of these things are changing, and as e-commerce becomes a bigger portion of retail, there's going to be a lot more payments as well as financing solutions for those sellers that are selling there. So my sense is that it is that the market, the capabilities are going to change significantly over the course of the next 10 years. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. I certainly think that the big platforms and the big marketplaces are going to continue to play an outsized role in terms of market share. And I think that will drive a lot of the other decisions as well as opportunities that those of us that are entrepreneurial and running startups in this ecosystem, just in terms of what options we have and where we can serve customers and where there are underserved customers, it's really going to depend a lot on what some of those bigger platforms end up doing and the capabilities that they bring to bear. Yeah, I've read a lot about sort of these changes that you mentioned and consumer behavior changes. I feel like that becomes the new normal, that people are now going to get comfortable with buying more online and, you know, the whole retail model is going to change. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And, and do you believe that that sort of new model is here to stay? We think so. At the same time, I'm I'm always cautious about using my own behavior as a barometer because I recognize that a lot of times I don't necessarily behave as some of our customers would. I know for myself, the minute I started using Amazon, I said, why would I ever walk back into a store for those things that I need there? It's just They ship it right to my house. It's so much easier. And so my behavior changed very quickly. It's always been a head scratcher to me that more people don't use that kind of convenience. I don't personally love the, the scenario of walking into a store, doing shopping, etc. So I'm not necessarily a good barometer. But that said, we certainly see that the ease, the convenience of being able to shop online do it quickly, whether you're on mobile, whether you're just, you know, thinking about it in passing, you know, and being able to order those things, have them have that convenience. We think that this shift in behavior and in demand is likely going to stay and it's going to continue to accelerate that shift. Brick and mortar is not going to go away entirely. So there will be some leveling off, but but certainly we don't think that that 16% of, in terms of market share of retail that e-commerce currently represents is going to go backwards. We think that it'll continue to expand. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk more about you and your journey. So tell the audience a little bit about how you got maybe from the college early year career to being the CEO of Payability. Yeah, I took a windy path. It probably didn't need to be as hard as I made it, but it was a windy path for me. When I was young, my both my parents were gainfully employed. I think their kind of their view of success was to get a steady job and stay there. I did not share that that same sentiment. 
we had, my parents had friends, family friends that we were very close to when I was a kid. And they would come over, I remember every Thursday night and play cards, play Rook with my parents. And invariably, they would start telling stories about their own entrepreneurial journey. They had started a clothing store and they were expanding and they were expanding into other cities. And I remember just eagerly sitting there waiting to hear about their latest stories, the challenges that they'd had, the successes that they had had. And so every Thursday, I would get that. And I think that planted a seed for me early on that that was something along the lines of what I wanted to do. I took a very windy path, though, because I decided later in life that I wanted to be a pastor. So I actually went to Bible college. That was the direction and the path I was going, and then changed my mind and said, you know what, I'm going to go back to my original plan, and I'm going to start starting companies. And so when I was 21, I started my first company. Payability is now my sixth startup. So by some estimations, you'd say I don't learn very quickly because I keep doing it over and over again. Uh, But I guess I'm a serial entrepreneur, and, and certainly love that journey and love that process of starting something where that didn't exist before, understanding the customer needs and working tirelessly with a group of really smart people in order to be able to solve for those problems. Gotcha. So what are some things you're passionate about? Maybe name one thing work-related and one thing personal. I'll name two personal, which are my two kids. So they are the apple of my eye. I view my primary role on this planet is dad. And that is kind of the lens that I look at everything through. So they are now grown. As I joke with them, I have no more minor children. I only have major children now. Uh, (laughs) I'm now officially an empty nester, which is a very different feeling. But it's a nice transition and a dad role to go from parenting kids that are living at home to parenting adult children that are are making their way in the world and, and figuring out how to make their dent in the universe. So that's been a lot of fun, a real joy. In terms of work, I think what's interesting is that I've enjoyed every company that I've started, some more than others. But I've never felt better about the mission of a company than I do about payability. Our ability to be able to every day wake up and serve the needs of small businesses in America that are growing, that are thriving, that need capital to be able to continue to do so, that is a real joy. And we get constant feedback from our customers. Some of it is very constructive. That's helpful. The vast majority of it is thanking us, telling us about what kind of impact that that it had on their lives. And this is not just impacting a big you know, kind of faceless corporation. This is impacting small companies, two to three person types of companies. A lot of times they're sitting around the dining room table, picking and packing with their family members and being able to support those businesses, help them to be able to grow. That is a real joy. And so that is certainly something that I've appreciated and and enjoyed about payability. Yeah, that's great. That's sort of the, the American dream and helping people be successful is a great feeling. It really is. It really is. Yeah. So, Well, I started in payments about 15 years ago, and back then, I sort of just fell into payments. It wasn't like I looked at this industry and said, I want to be in it and stay in it my whole life. But I think things have changed in the last few years. Kids in college can take fintech courses, get fintech degrees, learn a lot about the payment space, and I kind of lump payments and fintech sort of together a little bit. What would your advice be to someone coming right out of college, looking at the payments industry? You know, what would you tell them they should do to be successful if they want to be in this industry? So I think it's different if you're going to want to work for another company that's in this space or if you're looking to start your own company. My advice to anybody looking to start a company, and this is true for whether they're in payments or in any category, is my advice is always when somebody says, hey, should I start XYZ company? I say, no, you absolutely shouldn't. And the reason why I give that advice is this reason is that if my no can dissuade somebody from that mission 
that is going to be the least of the friction points that are going to be in their way as they set about to start a new company. And so they're going to have to learn how to bust down those kinds of obstacles. And so I feel like it's kind of my duty to put a little obstacle in their way to make sure that they can start to exercise the muscle of busting down those hurdles and those obstacles. I mean, I typically explain that as well. And I think it's just a good way for them to start thinking about, hey, do I really want to do this? You know, Do I really have what it takes to start a company and to stick with it? And it's not necessarily always fun. In fact, there's a lot of parts about it that are not fun. The Ultimately, the reward is, you know, I found to be incredible and very worth it, but you have to have that mindset that you're going to have to bust down barriers. As it relates specifically to payments, the big advice that I would give in a word is integrate. Think about how payments can be integrated into the other aspects and the other parts of lives and of other transactions. And you know, and, and you hear this theme consistently with me trying to figure out then how do we take the friction out of that experience and integrate this payment solution right into the existing experience so it will be much easier, much less painful for the customer, both sender and receiver. And so that is the, I think the watchword, it's integrate. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's some great advice. Well, we've covered a lot about payability, about the industry, about your journey. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I guess I would leave with this comment, which is that I feel like we are the very early stages. I mean, just talking about the market share of retail as one example, because payments is so critical to, and fintech in particular, is so critical to any sort of e-commerce seller that if you are in this space, we are still at the very, very early stages. E-commerce represents only 16% of overall retail. There is a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of innovation that's still coming. And so I think if we shouldn't sit around ever and think, hey, you know what, all the really interesting stuff has been developed, all the really interesting ideas have already come as it relates to payments and financing. I think that most of the real really interesting thing. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, looking back, most of the really, really interesting innovations around payments, around financing, around fintech generally are probably still to come in the next 10 years. And I think that's really exciting. It certainly motivates me every single day when I wake up. Okay. Well, that's great. And, you know, Keith, I really appreciate you being here. I know your time is incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Greg. It was fun. Yeah. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 